encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, our text will be verses, actually I'm going to go back to 39, verses 39 through 52 this morning there in Luke chapter 2. Hope you're, hope you're enjoying our time in Luke's Gospel. We're going to be there a while. If you've read Luke before, it's long. And so uh, if you haven't been enjoying it, uh, just pray that the Lord would uh, encourage you. Uh, it's a great gospel, obviously, inspired of the Lord. A uh, lot that we can take away. I want to turn your attention to Luke chapter 2 this morning. We're going to be reading verses 39 down through verse 52. I want you to hear the word of the Lord this morning. Luke writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to, according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they, were, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, "'Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress.' And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. It's true. We know that you sanctify us by it. So, Lord, would you do that now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I am thankful for the invention of the camera. My family will testify to this fact that I am a forgetful kind of person. And I often forget things that have happened in the past, but having pictures reminding me of those things is certainly helpful. It's a blessing. Uh, brings back to memory things I couldn't otherwise uh, re recall. Uh, and some of you go over the top. You've got endless catalogs of scrapbooks and photo albums, maybe almost idolatrous in a way, but you've got those memories captured, uh, maybe rooms filled with such things. Uh, for the rest of us, we have a few pictures here and there that remind us occasionally of things. I love looking back even through my kids and just thinking, wow, I forgot all about that, and seeing things that just bring back uh, memories that, um, that I had long forgotten. Uh, things that we think about, birthdays, school achievements, trips, uh, pictures often document defining moments in our lives, and I'm certainly thankful to live in a day where we can look back and see those and be reminded. You think about that, what, what, what would it would look like for us to have seen Mary's scrapbook of Jesus? She didn't obviously have one, no pictures back in those days and times, and we don't have any pictures from Jesus' childhood, but we do have Luke's gospel. 
And even though we don't have visible pictures, we do have a written snapshot of an account in Jesus's childhood that is quite instructive to us. Indeed, it's the only account in all of the gospels that we have of Jesus in his childhood. Certainly we have the account of the birth narrative of his infancy, even days later. But from that point forward, the only time we have, the only record that we have of Jesus, his life, uh, of his life before his adult earthly ministry is what we have right here in Luke chapter two. It's just a snapshot, if you will, one picture, if you will, of Jesus' childhood, and there is a lot that we can take from it. Jesus knew from an early age what his calling was, and that was to fulfill his father's purpose. So in this only scene from Jesus' childhood, there are going to be several important things about his calling, about him, that we see that's quite instructive for us today, that certainly informs us more about who he is, what he came to do, but also even things that he exemplifies for us that I think can be quite helpful. So I want us to look at four particular things regarding Jesus, even from this childhood account this morning, that should encourage us and strengthen us as we seek to follow him. First thing that I want us to see this morning is his personhood. One thing that Luke chapter two, this snapshot of Jesus's childhood that we get a glimpse of here very clearly is his personhood. One thing that is clear from the Bible and from passages like this is that Jesus was in fact human, 100% man. He was not merely appearing to be human, he was truly human. There are people in the world today that have existed a long time, going back throughout church history, that want to argue against that. They want to, to say, well, he couldn't have been fully human, truly human, truly man, uh, or all these other things would not have been able uh, to be possible. But we know that Jesus was truly God and truly man, and we're focusing in here this morning a bit on his humanity, his humanity. If you look there in verse 40, after in verse 39, he returns with his family to Nazareth. We know that the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom. He went from being a baby, he grew, to being a child, to being a man. He grew like we grow. He grew physically. He grew in his wisdom. He became wiser over time as a man. He grew in his relationship with God and with others. And friends, this is an important scene, and this is an important teaching because, again, there are those who struggle with the true humanity of Jesus. And when you begin messing with the true humanity of Jesus, you begin messing with a lot of different things, essential to the gospel especially. But right here, just what, the thing that we see, just as, as we look at him in his childhood, is that we see a glimpse of the true humanity of, of Jesus, that humanity being affirmed here. He lived a life as a man, just like you and I live as humans today, he would get hungry, he would get tired, he would learn and grow just as we do. In fact, if you were to look later in the Gospel of Matthew, we could look at multiple accounts of, of his life that enforce and reinforce this fact, but just let me take one other uh, later on from his adulthood. For example, in Matthew chapter 13 in verses 53 through 58, Jesus had just finished telling a series of parables in the midst of his 
ministry. And the text says, and when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown, he taught them. So he's back in Nazareth. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, they, they speaking, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, are not his, all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And then later on it says, then they took offense at him. And then it goes on later to say, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. But I want you to just get a little taste there. This is his hometown people saying, is that, isn't this Mary and Joseph's son? I mean, isn't this just the carpenter's kid? Who does he think he is marching into the synagogue and saying these, these amazing things? I mean, don't we know his brothers and sisters? Don't we know he's just one of us? This text shows us that those who knew Jesus best, those who were his neighbors in Nazareth, saw him no more than an ordinary man. He was simply one of them in their eyes. I've said this before, if you were able to take a snapshot, a picture of Jesus back in his day, he would not stand out as some, something unique and special. There would not be a glow about him. He would look like the rest of us. I've said this before too, and I heard this before, and if you were to put him in line with the 12 disciples, you maybe wouldn't be able to pick him out. He would just look like the rest of them. He, he's truly man. And that's exactly the, the impression you get even from those in Nazareth. Now, why do I emphasize that this morning? Why, why am I taking verse 40, the fact that he grew and became strong and filled with wisdom and, and honing in on the, the, the fact of his humanity? Why is that so important? Why must we even talk about that? Well, there are several reasons as to why the true humanity of Jesus matters. And I'm going to pull these reasons from other passages and show you just a sampling of why it's important, but you begin to see right here, even as a child, why, uh, why Jesus must have lived his life as, as a man. I want to give you uh, three, I believe, three reasons why we must believe the true humanity of Jesus. I could give you 12, but I'm giving you three this morning to shorten the message, okay? Uh, first of all, Jesus is our representative. When you think about the life and ministry of Jesus. He came to be our representative. We focus a lot on his atonement. I'll get to that in a minute, his death. But not only did Jesus come to die for us, he came to live for us. And that is important. His obedience as a man, he fully obeyed. His obedience as a man, his obedience to the law was an obedience that would later be credited to our accounts. And only someone that was truly human could do that, right? If, if Jesus came as only God and he obeyed as God, then, then it wouldn't be an exact obedience, would it? I mean, obviously... As someone who's divine, he would be able to do that. But he obeyed as a man. He, choose, he chooses to lay aside many of the rights and privileges that he had as God, and he chooses to live as someone just like us. Romans chapter 5, verse 18 and 19. Hone in on why this is so important. It says, as one trespass 
led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus came to be our representative, and he obeys as a man. Number two, second reason this is important, his humanity is important, is that Jesus came to be our substitute. He had to be like us so that he could die a death for us. Hebrews 2 verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus came as a man so that he could die, right? He died for our sake. He died in our place. But Jesus also came to be our mediator. Because of our sin and separation from a holy and righteous God, we must have someone that would go before us to present us and represent us before God. God is holy, we are sinful. We have to have someone to bridge that gap to, 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 to present us to God. We can't stand in the presence of God because he is perfectly holy and will not allow sin or anything corrupted in his presence. But Timothy, or Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, men the man Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus was truly God, but he was also truly man, which makes him the only person in human history able to be that perfect mediator, to represent us. And so he had to be truly human for that to be the case. Listen, the humanity of Jesus is absolutely essential if anyone is going to be saved. He came to represent, he came to, to, to substitute himself, he came to mediate, he came to, to, to bring us to God. And friends, if you come this morning and, and you're not following Jesus, this is exactly what we're talking about. He grew, he became strong, he was filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him because as a man he would live a righteous life and die a sinner's death so that the favor of God was, that was upon him could be favor extended to us as well. So our hope in him and what he came to do as a man is certainly the hope that leads us to find salvation. So you have his personhood identified here. We could say so much more about that, but it's just right there in verse 40, and you see it all the way through the rest of this passage, obviously implied. But number two, another takeaway that we take from this text is his presence. His presence. There in verses 41 through 46, we begin to see this scene that we have from his childhood unfold for us. We know that his parents went to Jerusalem. We're told every year at the Feast of Passover, they were very devout Jews obeying the customs and law of the day and time, and his parents go there uh, to this Passover. And this is, again, something that we should look at uh, and understand what's going on here. He's now 12 years old. Remember the last time we saw him, you can just look right back up, or maybe the page before, wherever your Bible, uh, just, just a few verses before this, where was Jesus the last time we have record of him? Obviously, 12 years have transpired. He's been in Nazareth most of them. But the last place we have him is in Simeon's hands in the temple, right? Now he's back 12 years later going to the temple for the feast of, uh, of uh, the, the Passover celebration. And he's with his parents back in the temple. The Passover celebration was a very important celebration for the Jewish people uh, because that would include this annual pilgrimage. Men were required to go. And the fact that Jesus' entire family is going just shows the, the depth at which they were devoted 
to the, the, the fact that they were quite a uh, uh, faithful uh, family. So this Passover is celebrated every year as a celebration recalling Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And here they are again in their annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate this. What Luke shows us is that even at an early age, as Jesus accompanies his family to Jerusalem, what Luke shows us is that even at an early age, Jesus was being taught the value and importance of religious devotion. What we see is that 12-year-old Jesus in Jerusalem, and as you keep reading the rest of the passage, Jesus is not just standing around in the corner of the temple kicking rocks, waiting for this all to be over to go back home. Right? He's there with his family present in the temple, and not only is he present physically, he is present spiritually. He is engaged in what is going on, even as a 12-year-old boy. There's so many things we could take away from this, but a lesson that we could easily take away from this text is the importance and weight being, of being actively involved in your faith community. Friends, if it was that important for Jesus and his family, what should that tell us about us and our family? We're told that Jesus grew in wisdom. Now, he didn't grow in wisdom by watching YouTube videos or listening to podcasts. One of the means of grace that was employed from the time he was a child was the fact that his family regularly gathered and participated in the Jewish religious practices of the day, the customs of the day. They were faithful observers of the things that God had instructed them to do. The fact that they were willing to walk five days, some 80 miles from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it's a five-day walk Five-day walk, once a year, just shows the depth of their seriousness about their devotion. Certainly, they were actively involved in their local synagogue. So his presence, either back in the synagogue, back in Nazareth, or on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem as part of the Passover, was, was very much part of his spiritual formation. It was there, it was here in places like this that Jesus would hear the word of God read and explained and he would be growing in wisdom. Now think, again, think about that. It's kind of hard for our minds to get around, but here you have 12-year-old Jesus sitting in the temple, hearing God's word, discussing God's word, questioning, answering. He's even some, some point out that he seems to be the one that's actually the teacher here, but he's there. And he's growing in his knowledge about the things of God, about all that's going on. And it was there where he would find a community of like-minded people that would encourage him along in his faith. Again, the critical point we need to take away is that if Jesus, the incarnate son of God, was regularly present in his faith community, then what should that tell us? If anyone had good reason to skip Sunday school, it would have been Jesus. But he's not. He's present. He's learning. He's growing. He's absorbing. He's being instructed. He's discussing. He's answering. It's part of his spiritual formation. He's present. Just a brief reflection little sidebar on 
for parents. One of the things that I think we see more and more common today that's impacting the church is for Christian parents to give their children the option of whether or not they want to tag along and go to church. Now, I know there are unique challenges in raising children, but I think what we see here, even in the early life, implied, it's not clearly stated, but even implied in the life of Mary and Joseph and 12-year-old Jesus is a, is a healthy pattern for us to see. They show us the priority of devotion being played out in their lives. It would have been no easy undertaking for Joseph to pack up his family, for Mary to help pack up her family, and for them to go to Jerusalem for this annual pilgrimage. Again, it's 80-mile walk. They didn't just jump in the minivan. They had to take part of a caravan, a four- to five-day journey by foot one way to be part of this celebration. It wasn't a convenient thing to do. It was a priority for them to be present. Too often families are allowing other priorities to weed out the importance of regularly gathering with God's family. Whether it's athletics or competitions or other things, whatever the case may be, we are often teaching our children that the local church is something that's good, but only if it fits our convenient schedule. And that is a dangerous precedence to set. You may not be a parent. You may be one of our singles. You may be married with no children. But the same is true for all of us, isn't it? Other things can easily take precedence over the importance of regularly gathering in a place of worship to regularly hear God's word so that we can be formed by it and strengthened as God's people. If it was important enough for Jesus and his family, then friends, I think it ought to take priority in our life as well. Worship and devotion to the Lord is not a matter of convenience, but very central to the formation of us being his people. He was present. But also I want you to see his priority. It leads right into this third point. You see his personhood, you see his presence, he was active, involved. Once Passover ended, Mary and Joseph and their group, their caravan, packed up and began their journey home. Now, in that day, it was common for people to, to travel together in large groups by foot because of the danger of robbers and other kinds of dangers that could happen in routes. And so they would often gather in large caravans and go to these annual pilgrimages together for safety reasons. And so when we read that a day had gone by without Mary and Joseph realizing that Jesus was not with them, it shouldn't be all that surprising because it wasn't just Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. It was their family and who knows how many other people and because Jesus was a compliant and obedient son, they would not be worried about where he was, you know, like the rest of us. When we're, you know, if some of our kids go missing for more than five minutes, we're freaking out because who knows what they're into, right? Well, not Jesus. They were confident that he was able to handle himself. And so it's not surprising to us that the, an entire day can go by. And, you know, for all they knew, they were, he was back in the back talking with one of his uncles or something like that. They, they didn't get too frantic too quickly. But they do soon figure out Jesus is missing. So they go back to Jerusalem, probably frantically, to try to find him. I mean, can you imagine what was going through their minds at that point? Jesus is lost in some way in their mind. He's, he's not lost. He knows exactly where he is and exactly what he's doing. But from their vantage point, they are they're in great distress, as they would later say. And we're told there in verse 46, after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. So there he is, 
chilling with all the teachers, blowing their minds with his questions and answers. Now I can almost just imagine the scene as, as can you, three days Mary and Joseph are looking in Jerusalem for him. Looking everywhere and they finally find him. I, I can almost just see them going in and finding him there, just a wreck. And they rush in and they see him and they just pause and they're like, wow, did he just say that? Now, where'd he get that from? And, you know, but it's obviously in the text there that, that, that Mary's instincts kick in quite quickly. We're told in verse 47, or excuse me, verse 48, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? So they're astonished for a second. And then Mary pulls him aside and was like, listen, what, what are you doing? Why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. But I want you to see his response because it's verse 49 that is the central point to this text. He said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Or some translations were about my father's business. Notice the contrast, Mary, behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And Jesus, did you not know that I must be in my father's house, my true father's house? So already here at age 12, Jesus, I think, understands clearly his calling and his responsibility and the role in which he would play, his relationship to his heavenly father. And right here at age 12, Jesus is eager to align himself first and foremost with God's purposes. A couple of things I want you to see about his priority that he sets for us. First of all, I want you to see the priority he sets as far as his commitment to study God's word. There he is in the temple, sitting among the teachers, learning and discussing God's word. His desire to know and discuss God's word is an important statement to us on many levels. I mean, he's desiring to know more and more about God. And he's God in the flesh. First of all, it shows us our need for the word. If Jesus, again, the incarnate son of God, the Messiah, is gathered with teachers listening and discussing the scriptures, then how much more ought we to be faithful students of God's word? We're told Jesus grew in wisdom. He grew in wisdom as he studied the word. His life, even at age 12, demonstrates this need, this reality in his priorities. Friends, I would just ask very, very quickly, when you think about Jesus, 12-year-old Jesus setting this priority in his own life, does, does a priority like this seem to be reflective in your own life? Does your life reflect this type of word-centered priority? Are you putting yourself in a position to regularly learn from the Bible? Let that sink a moment. Are you putting yourself in a regular position to learn about God from his word? Outside of Sunday morning worship, what does that look like? Jesus shows us our need very clearly for 
the word, his desire to grow in his knowledge and wisdom of the truths of, of God. But I think number two, it shows us also our ability to grow in the word. Jesus grew in wisdom. Particularly important to note is that he is 12. Some will say, well, he was the son of God. He kind of had an advantage. Again, friends, don't use that argument. It's a bad argument. He was truly human. He was a real 12-year-old. I'm sure he did kick rocks from time to time and do what 12-year-old boys do. He wasn't some glowing little special human-like 12-year-old. He was a real 12-year-old. Shows us our ability to grow in God's word. Some will, sometimes we underestimate just how much children and youth can really learn about the things of God. It's our conviction here at Redeeming Grace that kids from an early age can understand truth and that they can learn important theological truths even early on. So just like Jesus, we want to place a high premium on regularly positioning ourselves to be in a posture of growth and learning, that we would be growing in wisdom just like our Savior grew in wisdom. He kind of set that as a priority in his own life. And friends, again, if the Messiah is setting that as a priority in his life, then friends, it ought to show us the need for God's word to be central in our lives as well. Not only do we see a commitment to study the word, we also see a desire to align himself with his father's work. It's true, I think, that Jesus is, he's not unaware of his unique role. He's aware of what's going on. And his response to Mary and Joseph, he expresses that it's his relationship with the father, capital F, that informs how he goes about his life. Luke even shows us, I think, that Jesus knew the Old Testament pretty well because he sees himself as the fulfillment. This is, who knows what they were talking about in that moment and over, over those three days that he remained in the temple. But look at what Jesus says. He said, did you not, to Mary, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? I must be. This meant he had to be. This, this was a driving agenda for him. The, the fact that he understood even at 12, that he had been sent for a very special reason and that this was part of his ministry and part of his purpose. Friends, what an encouragement and example that should be for us. His, he was resolved to serve God's purposes from age 12, even if it appeared to compromise his relationship with his earthly parents. I wonder if that is our attitude as well. Is our commitment to the Lord evidence to those in our lives who may not understand our gospel-centered commitments? For some of you, it has been quite costly to follow Jesus. It has cost you friendships. It has cost you family relationships. It has cost you a lot when Jesus called you to follow him, you understand just how costly that can be. It can be quite costly. And people you know and love just simply don't get it. 
And your relationships, many of them, have changed because of your faith in Christ. For others, you may be in a position where you are more willing to accommodate people's opinion over aligning yourselves with the clear purposes and plan and ministry and mission of God. I think Jesus, again, sets quite an example for us, doesn't he? His priority was his father's business. His priority was bringing glory to God. And friends, sometimes we will be in a position where we're gonna have to make choices of whether or not we're going to be devoted to Christ, devoted to the purposes and plan of God as clearly revealed in the Bible, or are we gonna be more concerned with what culture thinks or with what friends think or with what family members think? And if we get too serious about following Jesus, it's gonna affect those things. Sometimes we're gonna to have to make choices others will not understand because God has called us to priorities and a worldview that is radically different from everyone else's. Jesus shows us his priority, which should set the agenda for our priority. Is the word of God and the work of God, first and foremost, your priority? But then I want you to see, lastly, his patience. You see his personhood. You see his presence, putting himself in a position, and even through his family, putting themselves in a position to to grow in wisdom, to be devoted. You see the priority that he sets, but then you see his patience. Verse 50, they don't understand what he said to them. And verse 51, and then it tells us he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Now, I think it's important to say that this does not constitute the official beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. I think that comes later on. You remember, John the Baptist still had stuff to do, as the Old Testament told it. You know, he's the forerunner. He would be the one that would prepare the way of the Lord, and he does. We're going to talk more about John the Baptist beginning next week in chapter 3. So to be faithful to the prophecy, faithful to the way that God planned it out, this was not the beginning, the launching, if you will, of Jesus' official earthly ministry. But it does show us something very important about his commitment to his earthly ministry. Jesus would have to wait for a time. And so he does. The fact that he goes back to Nazareth, the fact that he's submissive to his parents, shows us his willingness to wait on the right timing and the right opportunity to begin his ministry. Even though he is actively pursuing his father, putting himself in a position and demonstrating his priority, he is not running ahead of him or dragging his feet to obey him. Thus you find in verse 51 that he responds to his parents, he submits to them and he goes back home and he waits. And that's the last we have on record of him before his earthly ministry begins. I think Jesus demonstrates a very important trait here. While we must unashamedly align ourselves with God's purposes, we must be willing to wait for God's timing as regards certain aspects of the calling he gives each of us. I think this attitude is not intended to be uniquely applied to Jesus alone, but demonstrates how we all should patiently approach God and his leading in our life. There will be specific moments 
in your life, in my life, when we must wait up on the Lord. God's timing is always the best timing, the right timing. And there will be plenty of times in our lives when we are tempted to run past him, to run ahead of him, to think we could just do this ourselves. And we're taught in, in our day and time, aren't we, just this idea of instant gratification. And we can even justify running ahead of God for good reasons. We want to reach people. We want to see relationships restored. We want to see this and that happen. But it is wise and best to trust God's providential timing. It can be hard, but it is best. On the flip side of that, that doesn't mean that patience isn't an excuse for inaction. Jesus is active. He is present. He is demonstrating the priority of God in his life. He is pursuing his Father. He is on mission. He is understanding that the Word of God is, is central to his growth in grace and to his increase in wisdom. But he is also patient. He is patient. And friends, it just, again... A little glimpse into Jesus' life here reminds us of the wisdom, of how much wisdom there is in learning to trust God's right timing. We need to be willing to trust the Father's right timing in our lives. This is exactly what Jesus does. He continued to be as a child. We're told in verse 52, and Jesus increased in wisdom. This three-day stint in Jerusalem was not the extent of his spiritual formation. He increased. He continued to grow as a child and to, to, to manhood. He continued to increase in wisdom and in favor with God and man. There's another, as we close this morning, there, there's one verse that just, you know, as I was reading this passage in this text that, I don't want to be too fast to skip over. It's verse 50. After Jesus tells Mary, did you not know that I must be in my father's house? We're told, and they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. That's a bit surprising. Both Mary and Joseph had angels reveal to them who Jesus would be and what he was going to come and do. Angel, I mean, if an angel came and told you something, do you not think you would remember that? That just stick in your mind? So it's a little surprising that when they go back to the temple and Jesus tells them, did you not know this is where I'm supposed to be about my father's business in my father's house? It's surprising a little bit to me in verse 50 that they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. It's surprising because of all the people on the planet in that time, they should have understood exactly what Jesus meant. They were astonished, and yet they didn't understand. It was no secret to them that Jesus was the Messiah and that he would have a clear mission and purpose. Friends, let me just say this in closing. Let that be a warning to us. Do not, even after all of the revelation you have, about Jesus, do not misunderstand who he is and what he came to do. Even those closest to him didn't fully get him. Remember Luke's purpose of writing this to Theophilus back in chapter one? Just remind us, verse three, 
Luke said, it seemed good to me, also having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. That you may have certainty. Here they are at Passover. And little did they know, or at least at this point in verse 50, that there would come a day when Jesus would have a Passover meal with his disciples and just a short time later give his life as the fulfillment of Passover once and for all. This one snapshot from Jesus' childhood shows us exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. It adds to the foundation of certainty. This Jesus, who grieved his mother by remaining behind in the temple, would be the one who would pierce her soul as he later gave himself to die for sinners. As the Lamb of God, whose blood was shed so that all who were looking to him and covered by him would be saved. This one in the temple would be the temple. And all who looked to him would find life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this account from Jesus' life that shows us so much about him and about his priorities and about his life, even as a young boy. Lord, when we see it in context with all the other events that preceded and took place after his ministry, but before his life and after he, res- he was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. Lord, we thank you for this little picture, this little snapshot, this little insight into his life. That we can see that he truly was a man, that he was present in the places where his family was present, the priorities that was set in his own life and his family's life, the fact that he came to show us the way forward. And yes, Lord, he came to to ultimately give himself upon a cross and die in our place, be raised from the dead so that we could have life. But Lord, even in his earthly life, we see ways that he shows us how to walk with you, how to look to you, how to trust in you, how to see you as the foremost priority in all that we say and do. Father, we thank you for his example, and Lord, we thank you for his finished work. Lord, we're thankful that we have 22 more chapters of watching him grow to the point of ultimately giving himself for our sake. God, would you work in us this morning everything that we need that we may be your devoted followers. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.